Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for... Well, in continuing our series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. A couple of weeks ago we looked at the subject of baptism in the Holy Spirit and we looked at how just over 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost something happened that changed things. Something happened that changed the lives of nearly everyone who was present. It changed the lives of the early disciples but it also change the whole course of the world. The age of the Spirit had begun. Up until that point in history, it had been God's method to pick out significant individuals and then for the Holy Spirit to come upon them and anoint them. And he would equip them, but for a particular purpose. And when that job was done, then the Spirit would lift off them again. Right through the Bible, you can see examples of that in the Old Testament. You can see it in Saul, who for a while prophesied. You can see it in the life of David. You can see it in characters like Samson. You can see it in the lives of the prophets. The list goes on and on as you look through the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came on them for a season, for a time, and for a purpose. And then 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, as we read about it in Acts chapter 2, something happened that changed everything. And what we then see is that to try and explain what has happened, Peter stands up in front of a crowd and starts to address them. Because he feels there is the need for an explanation. Now for about a week, the 120 or so disciples had been getting up and going to a room and meeting together to wait on God. And what I think they'd been doing is they'd been crying out, come, do what you've promised. Because just before Jesus had ascended, he made a promise to them. And he said to them, wait in Jerusalem. And so they waited. And then, after this week, the Holy Spirit suddenly comes on them. And they experience something collectively that had never happened before. Before, it was one here and one there. One now and one a bit later. But now something else is happening. The age of the Spirit has begun. And instead of selected individuals being picked, God starts moving on people without distinction. It doesn't matter who you are. It didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman, whether you were old or young, what your race, colour or class were. It didn't even matter how educated you were. Because God comes on his people in a totally new way. And instead of one person receiving his spirit, everyone is filled. 
everyone who is there is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so then what we read in Acts 2 is Peter trying to make sense of it all. Trying to explain to the others who were there. Because remember, this was a feast day. This was a time in Jerusalem when thousands of people had come back for an event. And they'd come from all the surrounding nations. Firstly, he gives an explanation. You can read this in Acts 2.14 onwards. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That's his explanation. These men aren't drunk. It's too early in the morning even for us. And then he goes on and he quotes something from the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here begins a whole new chapter in the history of mankind. And Acts is a record of God's selected dealings with men and women during the start of that period. And when you look at what's described as you read on through the book of Acts, what you find is this. The same thing happens time and time again. As you trace the Holy Spirit coming on people, you see the same things. Now, I think there were probably loads of instances of the Holy Spirit coming on people that aren't recorded in Acts. Acts really just gives us a snapshot of what Luke witnessed, what he saw and what he recorded. But I think what probably happened... As 3,000 were added to the church on that day, as they were converted that day in Jerusalem, as they went back to their hometowns, to their villages, or even to their houses at the end of the feast, they were bound to start sharing with others what had happened to them. They'd have spoken to their families, to their friends, to their colleagues, about the incredible events that they'd witnessed and been part of in Jerusalem. 
And as they did that, then I think the same things we read about in Acts were probably happening in other places as well. Certainly, we know from Acts itself this wasn't an isolated incident because you read in Acts 2 about Pentecost, then in Acts 8 you read about when the Spirit comes to the Samaritans, in Acts 9 you read about when the Spirit falls on Saul, in Acts 10 you read about the Spirit falling on the Gentiles, and in Acts 19 you read about the believers in Ephesus being filled with the Spirit. And so we know it certainly started to happen in other parts of the world as well. What is recorded in Acts is just a snapshot of what was starting to happen. In fact, if you look at the letters that Paul and Peter then wrote later, what you'll see is they take things for granted. They take these things for granted because for them it was standard practice. The baptism in the Holy Spirit was anticipated in the Gospels, it was articulated and worked out in Acts, and then it is assumed in the epistles, in the letters of Paul and Peter. So what is the evidence that something happened? What does it prove something happened? How do we know something happened in the lives of those early disciples on the day of Pentecost and in the other times we see it happening in Acts? I'll tell you first of all what it wasn't. It was nothing to do with fruit. Now that might seem a strange thing to say. But what convinced people that the Holy Spirit had fallen on people was not fruit. It wasn't fruit in people's lives. When a person comes to know Jesus, God begins a work in their lives. He changes them. He changes them from the inside out. He starts to change and work on their character, on the way they think, on their behaviour, and much more. And you can read all about that in Galatians 5. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Now there may be other fruit that comes from God working in our lives, but those are the ones that are mentioned in Galatians. Now when Peter stood up to address that crowd at Pentecost... 
when the 120 burst out of that room, he didn't talk about the fruit. He didn't say, hang on, let's wait a year and see what happens in these people's lives and what the fruit of this is. He didn't say, if you watch these guys, what you'll begin to see is the evidence of God working in their lives. And then you'll know if the Holy Spirit has come or not. He instantly sees that this is what has been promised. And his mind goes back to that prophecy of Joel. And so he describes it to them. These men and women are not drunk. He says what he sees. Some people say things like, you know if you've been baptised with the Holy Spirit because God will begin to change your life. Well, they're right, he will. But actually, that should have started the moment you trusted in Jesus. The fruit in your life can take years to grow because it requires discipline, it requires prayer, it requires reading and obeying God's word. And it requires submitting to God's will for our lives. And then it's something that grows in us. It grows in our lives, but it requires tending. It requires cultivation. It's like God has planted a seed in you, and you need to allow it to grow. And it requires God to bring the change in you from the inside out. And that can take time. And that isn't what we see at Pentecost. Fruit is something that's produced in character with the organism that's making it. Apple trees produce apples. The trees have to be pruned to keep them fruitful. They have to be treated with care and tended to get the best out of them. But I'll let you in on the secret. Christmas trees are quite different. They don't bear Christmas fruit. They bear presents. The gifts that you find on and around a Christmas tree bear no relation to the type of tree. Each gift is different. They're not connected with the tree at all. Just think how disappointed you'd be if one Christmas the only thing you found under the Christmas tree was pine cones. Yeah, I would be. And it's important we understand this. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not fruit in our lives. They are gifts that are given to us so that we might produce more fruit in our lives. And so the evidence that the Holy Spirit had come that day was not fruit in people's lives. It was gifts. The gifts that had been foreseen and written about by Joel. 
Then in Acts 8, this is about two years later, the Samaritans hear the gospel and their hearts respond to it. The apostles lay hands on them and something happens. For the apostles, this was a confirmation. It was the same thing that had happened to them in Acts 2. In Acts 10, when the Gentiles were brought into baptism in the Holy Spirit, Peter describes it by saying the same thing that happened to us happened to them. Whatever he saw, whatever he heard that day, in his mind he went back to Pentecost and he said it is the same thing. So whenever someone is baptised in the Holy Spirit, something happens. It might be very calm. There might be laughter. There might be tears. Something might be felt. But something happens that connects you with what happened to those early disciples in Acts 2. There's evidence. In each recorded instance... The people around them knew something had happened. And mostly it seemed to be about speech. When you look at it, when you look at those accounts in Acts, nearly always it says, we heard, we saw. In Acts 8, you can read about the account of Simon the magician. It says this from verse 18 onwards. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon saw something. It was evidenced. In Acts 10, when the Gentiles are reached with the Gospel, now this is about ten years after Pentecost, It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. The people were amazed, because they saw something and they heard something. In Acts 19, we're now talking about 18 years after Pentecost. Paul has been on his travels and he comes across this group of people who've been doing their best to follow God. And it says this, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptised? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptised with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. 
And on hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. How did Paul know that they'd received the Spirit? Because he saw and heard the evidence. So when the Holy Spirit comes on people, the test is not the fruit. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can work at. It is a gift. And the wonderful thing about it is it is available to every single believer. Look at what Joel says. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. They will prophesy. They'll see visions. They'll dream dreams. It's going to be a felt experience. Now what do I mean by a felt experience? Well, if you go to the doctors because you need an injection, that is a felt experience. You know something has happened. You might be quite calm about it, but you still know you've had it. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is the same. You know that something has changed. You might only know it as an act of faith. You might not feel much, but you know something is going on. For some, it is a very dramatic experience. But in scripture, it was speech that showed what had happened. The evidence came out of people's mouths. And that's quite fitting, really. Because Matthew, in his gospel, wrote in Matthew 12, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you're full of joy, you often laugh. When you're full of grief, you cry. When you're full of emotion, it tends to come out of your mouth. It shows what's going on in your heart. And the same is true when you're full of the Holy Spirit. So the evidence is this. That you hear something, that you see something. Something spiritual. Paul wrote, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. It's something spiritual. It's a spiritual act. It's not something in your mind. Yes, you do the speaking, but it is your tongue, your vocal cords, your lungs and your lips. You may be able to understand what's being said. You might not. But you can hear it with your own ears. But the reality is, it is something that comes out of your spirit. It is a spiritual act. And so in Acts 2, seven weeks after the Passover, something spiritual happened. And people thought they were drunk.
Why do you think that was? Have you been around people who are drunk? You soon start to be able to recognise them, don't you? You can recognise them by their behaviour. And so Peter stood up and explained what the people were seeing. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Tells us they were speaking. They were speaking something out. The passage tells us that there were people there from different nationalities. And that they all understood. But let's be clear on this. Let's be clear about what the miracle is here. It doesn't say to us that God miraculously opened up people's ears so that they could hear whatever it was the apostles said. It tells us that he loosened the apostles' tongues so that they could speak in languages that they had never learnt. And that everyone heard God and praised him in their own language. In Acts 8, two years after Pentecost, people are being saved. The Holy Spirit fed on them. And then someone sees something happening as the apostles lay hands on them. It doesn't tell us what it was they saw, but they saw something. In Acts 9, at the conversion of Saul, Ananias lays hands on him. And it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Another incredible experience witnessed by other people. And again evidenced by speech. Then when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, again we see supernatural activity. There's prayer and as people open their lives up to God, he does something. God begins to connect with them, just like he does with us today. In Acts 10 and in Acts 11, we see all kinds of supernatural things happen. In verse 5, Peter's into a trance. Then he has a vision, he hears a voice. He then says the Spirit told him to say something. And then he seems to have an angelic visitation. And then in verse 15, it says, The Holy Spirit had fallen on them, just as it had on those at Pentecost. What it makes me believe is that baptism in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, it's all part of the package. Now I do want to make a distinction here, because it's an important distinction that I believe Paul makes. And that's the distinction between the gift of tongues and the prayer language of tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14 he says, when you speak in tongues, you edify yourself. 
It means you build yourself up. Now, I remember hearing, I'm on sensitive ground here for a moment, but women are meant to have vocabulary of about three times that of men. And they need to use it. They, on average, need to use three times as many words every day as a man does to feel satisfied in life. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. But I think women are just more verbal than men. Because I know, I sometimes get to the point where my vocabulary runs out. I get to the point praying where I simply run out of words. For those of you who've been with me to prayer and fast, where we spend two days praying and fasting, you know midway through the second day I start to say things like, I am just prayed out. Now it seems a silly thing to say, but that's how I feel. But when you run out of words, there are other things. There's tongues. Because in tongues, there's no constraint on your thoughts or your words. You can just pray out. It's a private prayer language. It's there for all of us. And really, there's no reason why we shouldn't use it. That's what it's there for. When Paul said, do all speak in tongues, it was quite obviously a rhetorical question. And the assumed answer he's expecting is, no. <coughs> but I think there's a subtext to that question that almost is there. That he went on, almost went on to say, he almost went on to say, but I should do. Because why else would he later say that he earnestly desires that we would all speak in tongues? And in fact he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. It shows how important he thought it was. So that's the private prayer language. Then there is the public gift of tongues, where God gives someone a tongue for the church, and they speak it out. And someone comes, and they bring that, and then someone brings an interpretation to it. And these two things are quite different. And when you read the way Paul talks about them, you find he switches between the two. He says, firstly, praying in tongues edifies you. And then he goes on to say, there's no point speaking it out unless it's interpreted, because then it edifies the whole of the church. They may sound the same, but the effect to them is quite different. There's the private prayer language that anyone can bring. And there is the public gift which comes with interpretation. 
so what's the purpose? What is tongues all about? I think it's a means of supernatural communication with our God. That's the basis of it. It is the evidence of baptism in the Spirit. It is something that builds us up, strengthens us and equips us. It's something which when used with interpretation actually builds up the whole of the church. Paul actually talks about it being a sign to unbelievers. Because he talks about when they hear a tongue or an interpretation, they know that God is speaking and that their hearts are revealed. The secrets of their hearts are known. It's a tool for our personal development. It enables us to praise God in a way that isn't limited to our normal vocabulary and energy. Something that is outside of our understanding. It's a tool for intercession when we simply don't know what to pray. It allows our spirits to take on the praying for things that we don't understand. And I think it's a weapon. One that builds us up. One that brings revelation. Now, I know in talking about this, there's probably a good number of people here feeling, but I do speak in tongues. I do pray in tongues. And I know I'm talking to the converted. But what I want to say this morning is let's value that gift. Let's put it in the place it should be, both in our private times with God and in our corporate worship. Let's not let it get devalued, as some do. Paul said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Wouldn't it be good to give him a run for his money? Yeah? Why? Why did he say that? I think he said that because he truly understood the value of the gift. I just want to encourage you, practice it, use it more often, and keep pressing on for more. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.